Welcome to the broadcast of Better Together, Republican Democrats and Republicans who love America. Episode 93. So in the last episode, we were talking about Israel's support for Iran's protests, the women um, who are fighting for their freedom and Israel supporting them. And that was beautiful. Israel made a lot of news topics that we're going to cover soon. First, I'm just kind of clearing out my political podcast file. I want to catch up on some stories that may have missed you. Okay, the first story is the Washington Post, Tony Rome. September 22, the U.S. watchdog estimates 45.6 billion in pandemic unemployment fraud. A federal watchdog on Thursday found that fraudsters may have stolen 45.6 billion from the nation's unemployment insurance program during the pandemic, using the social security numbers of dead people and other tactics to deceive and bilk the U.S. government. The new estimate is dramatic increase from the roughly $16 billion in potential fraud identified years ago, a year ago, rather, and it illustrates the immu- immense task still ahead of Washington as it seeks to pinpoint the losses, recover funds, and hold criminals accountable from stealing from a vast array of federal relief programs. The report issued by Inspector General for the Labor Department paints a grim portrait of the country's jobless aid program beginning under the Trump administration in 2020. The weekly benefits helped more than 57 million families just in the first five months of the crisis, yet the program quickly emerged as a tempting target for criminals. To siphon away funds, scammers allegedly filed billions of dollars in unemployment claims in multiple states simultaneously and relied on suspicious, hard-to-trace emails. In some cases, they used more than 205,000 social security numbers that belonged to dead people. Other suspected criminals obtained benefits using the identities of prisoners who were ineligible for aid. But officials at the watchdog office warned their accounting may still be incomplete. They said they were not able to access more updated federal prisoner data from the Justice Department and acknowledged that they only focused their report on high-risk areas for fraud. The two factors raised the prospect that they could uncover billions of dollars in additional theft in the months to come. The government also announced Thursday it had reached the milestone of charging a 1,000 individuals with crimes involving jobless benefits during the pandemic. Kevin Chambers, the Director for Coronavirus-Related Enforcement for the Justice Department, described the situation in a statement as unprecedented fraud. The Inspector General's office, meanwhile, said it had opened roughly 190,000 investigative matters related to unemployment insurance fraud since the start of the pandemic. Asked about the findings, a spokesman for the Labor Department pointed a response letter from the agency included with the Inspector General's report. The agency said it committed to helping states combat the continually changing and new type sophisticated fraud impacting the UI system. It pointed to the monetary grants and other recent guidance meant to help states improve their systems for awarding and monetary claims. Monitoring claims. 
Gene Sperling, the top White House advisor overseeing stimulus implementation, added the statement that the Biden administration worked to help Inspector General obtain access to jobless claims data across the states for its investigation. This reform helped empower IG's critical work to detect fraud, which then allowed authorities to deter and punish major UI fraudsters, he said. The new report on unemployment fraud underscores a persistent challenge facing the federal government two years after it approved the first of roughly $5 trillion in response to the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. That money helped rescue the economy from collapse early in the pandemic, yet it quickly became a ripe target for waste, fraud, and abuse. The Post has documented in a year-long series tra- tracking the spending and the COVID money trail. The scope of that theft has been vast. Earlier this week, federal prosecutors charged 47 defendants in an entirely different scheme, targeting a program to provide free meals for needy children. The organization Feeding Our Future allegedly stole more than $250 million from the meal program in what Justice Department described as the largest single fraud case targeting coronavirus aid to date. Federal investigators similarly have raised alarms and pursued charges involving roughly $1 trillion in loans and grants meant to help small businesses. But theft isn't the only issue. In some cases, the government's generous aid proved ineffective or helped finance pet projects that had nothing to do with addressing the coronavirus, the Post had found. Republican governors, for example, tapped a $350 billion program meant to bolster their response to the crisis for a wide array of controversial political causes, including tax cuts and immigration crackdowns. Beginning in 2020, Congress expanded unemployment benefits to meet the magnitude of the crisis. Lawmakers allowed a wide range of -of out-of-work Americans, including contractors for gig economy companies, such as Uber, to collect jobless aid for the first time. Washington repeatedly augmented the sizes of those checks, at one point providing an extra $600 in weekly payments. The crush of applications amid historic unemployment quickly overwhelmed the state workforce agencies that administer the program. Many of those agencies had been neglected for years, and underfunded staff relying on decades-old computers to process a historic number of requests for financial support. Many Millions of Americans saw massive delays in receiving aid as a result, creating chaos easily exploited by fraudsters, many of whom stole innocent Americans' identities to obtain weekly checks in their names. Hundreds of billions in pandemic funds attracted fraudsters seeking to exploit the UI program, resulting in historic levels of fraud and other improper payments, Larry Turner, the Inspector General for the Labor Department, said in a statement. Studying the program between March and October 2020, the Inspector General initially found more than $16 billion in potential fraud in key high-risk areas. But the watchdog more recently began warning that the total was likely to rise, perhaps considerably. Testifying to Congress this March, Turner said they could have been a $163 billion in overpayments, a term that includes fraud as well as money wrongly sent to innocent Americans. The amount was a projection relying on sim- sample of federal spending to commute, compute the total misspent funds among nearly seven among nearly 900 billion in unemployment payments made during the pandemic. On Thursday, federal watchdogs coupled their latest estimate with fresh criticism of the Labor Department, raising concern that investigators' access to state unemployment data to further find fraud could be in jeopardy after 2023. 
the trouble, which dates back to internal government dispute that the Post reported on this year, previously prompted the Inspector General to raise alarms about its ability to conduct oversight. But the Labor Department, in its formal reply, described the contention not, not fair, citing the fact it still must revise existing regulations. Separately, Sperling said the White House is committed to working with new multi-state data sharing beyond the 2023, as the report calls for. A sheer magnitude of theft already sparked a wave of federal enforcement actions, including the week including this week when a federal court sentenced an Illinois man to 39 months in prison for fraudulent obtaining unemployment benefits when he was incarcerated. The Biden administration similarly had ramped up its work to address the problem, including through the consideration of new government policies meant to crack down on identity theft and federal programs. On Capitol Hill, Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, who chairs Senate Finance Committee, praised a strong effort to identify criminals, but the senator stressed on Thursday need for legislative overhaul of the jobless benefit system. I've long said we need a national set of technology and security standards for the state systems to better prevent this kind of fraud. We're going to keep working to get our reforms passed. Yeah, I know California is a big culprit in that. We had a terrible EDD fraud scheme where it was simply traced to um, our state's computers that would not double check to make sure that the applicant was not in some sort of a correctional facility. So a lot of California's fraud resulted in criminals in jail um, getting checks um, because that system wasn't going to be able to double check to make sure that the applicant was indeed not incarcerated. <laughs> really lame. So this is the thing where... As a Democrat, I understand the Republicans' concerns about um, handing out money if the systems themselves are leaky boats. If the systems are leaky, leaky boats, then handing out money is essentially handing out money to the wrong people, to criminals and people that don't justifiably earn that money. And so, you know, we Democrats love to hand out money. We love social spending. We love all these things. But we have to make sure that we're up to par with our infrastructure before we do all that. Um, or why we, while we do that and identify it and have these exposés come out because it undermines the effort of Democrats to hand out money if the system itself is a leaky boat, right? Then it looks good for a story, but it's actually not helping solve the problem and get money to the right people, right? Who are, the money is intended to go to. So I wanted to comment on that. So there's some update about the Arizona shipping container wall. Um, so the federal government now is requesting that Arizona remove the shipping container wall uh, that they used around Yuma, Arizona to secure the border. And the primary reason for that is its encroachment in Native American indigenous land which it does intersect. Um, so let's read that. Anita Snow, Monday from the LA Times, federal government tells Arizona to remove the wall of shipping containers at the border. Federal government is demanding that Arizona remove double-stacked shipping containers placed to fill the gaps in the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, saying they're unauthorized and violate U.S. law. The Cocopa Indian tribe in southwestern Arizona welcomed the call to take down the containers in the latest rift between Biden administration and Republican-led border states over how to prevent illegal border crossings. In a letter last week, the Federal Bureau of Reclamation 
also demanded that new containers be no new containers be placed. It said the Bureau wants to prevent conflicts with two federal contracts that have been awarded and two more still pending to fill the border wall gaps. Oh, really? Near the Morelos Dam in Yuma area. Okay, so there's work there. That's interesting. Okay. Notice how that's hush-hush. Two federal contracts have been awarded and two more still placing to fill the border wall gaps near the Morales Dam in Yuma area. Good. The authorized placement of those containers constitutes a violation of federal law and is trespass against the U.S., the letter states. The trespassing, the trespass is harming federal lands and resources and impeding reclamation's ability to perform its mission. There was no immediate response Monday from Republican Governor Doug Ducey's office, but he has said in the past it would remove the containers if the U.S. government starts to construct and fill the gaps. That's fair. The tribe complained last month that the state acted against its wishes by placing 42 of the double-stack containers on its land near Yuma to halt illegal border crossings in an area that has become a major entry point for immigrant for migrants. We believe the Bureau is taking necessary and appropriate action to resolve the issue, Cocoa Tri said in a statement during distributed Monday. Beyond that, we'll continue working side-by-side with local, state, and federal enforcement on securing the border. Ducey ordered the installation of more than 100 double-stacked containers over the summer, saying he couldn't wait for the U.S. Customs and Border Protection to award the contracts it had announced for work to fill the gaps in the border wall in the Yuma area. Migrants, meanwhile, have continued to avoid the recently erected barriers by going around them, including the Cocopa Reservation. The border wall, the wall promoted by the former President Trump continues to be a potent issue for Republican politicians hoping to show the support for border security. President Biden halted wall construction first day in office, leaving billions of dollars of work unfinished but still under contract. Trump worked at the end of his term to extend the wall for more than to more than 450 miles, nearly a quarter of the border. The Biden administration has made few exceptions for small projects at areas deemed unsafe for people to cross, including the gaps near Yuma. The quibble over the containers close to Yuma underscores the obstacles faced when constructing barriers on the border. Building on tribal land, including Tohono O'odham Nation in Arizona, can provoke opposition. Landowners, especially in Texas, where much property is privately owned, also can refuse to sign off on construction. Ducey, like federal... Ducey, like fellow Republican Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, has often sparred with the Democratic Biden administration over immigration policies. Both states in recent months have been offering free bus rides to the East Coast for asylum seekers who were released in the U.S. to pursue their cases. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis arranged private flights of Venezuelans from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Arizona did the job the federal government has failed to do. And we showed them just how quickly and efficiently the border can be made more secure. If you want to, Ducey said when the containers were installed in southern Arizona. Well, I think that's really great that there's a plan in place. I don't think it's talked about very much. Um, great. Let's talk about Israel. So basically the Israel-Ukraine issue is that Iran is now um, contributing to Vladimir Putin's side of the Ukrainian-Russian conflict. 
And so the question is, is what will Israel do to help the Ukrainian side against the Russian-Ukrainian conflict? And um, Ukrainians were requesting the Iron Dome be used. Israel said, no, that's not going to be used. Um, so Israel's trying to figure out its response to what Iran, Iran is doing to support Russia and how Israel will support Ukraine. So this article is Jerusalem Post. How can Israel help Ukraine without sending military equipment? analysis. This is by Seth Fransman Wednesday. Russia is increasingly using Iranian-style drones to strike Ukraine, and there are reports that Iran could not be ready to supply missiles to Russia, as well as sending more technicians to help Russia with its drone war. The Russians' use of Iranian-style drones, either brought from Iran or built in Russia, is now a major concern. This has led to increased focus on Israel and whether Israel air defenses could be sent to help Ukraine or whether Israel has a duty to, to do more for beleaguered Eastern European country. Considering the reluctance in Jerusalem to send military aid, the fact that Israel has elections coming up and Russians threat if Israel supplies arms will destroy relations with Moscow are all very good reasons for the Jewish state to be concerned about greater involvement. This puts Israel in a bind. On the one hand, it's a close ally of the West and has condemned Russia's invasion. Israel has also some of the best multi-layered integrated air defenses in the world. Some of these developed with U.S. cooperation, such as the Arrow and David Sling. Others receive U.S. support, such as Iron Dome. Israel has sold the, the U.S. two Iron Dome batteries. The American company Rathion is partner for Israel's Rafael and the Iron Dome and David Sling system. Israel has also exported its Barak and Spider air defense systems to countries like India and Morocco. Um, so there are opportunities for the Jewish state to explore exports of systems to Ukraine, perhaps via third parties. On the other hand, sending sensitive, expensive, and advanced Israeli air defenses to Ukraine may be difficult, in part because of their costs and also sensitive issues, not wanting them to fall into Russia's hands or provoking Moscow to retaliate in Syria. So what else could Israel do that supports Ukraine without military involvement? Really? Okay. One of the main issues today in Iran's shipment of drones to Russia, now the reports Iran... Oh, that's just as a repeat. Hold on. Israel could aid Ukraine by advising or aiding on how to stop the drones before they end up in Russia's hands or providing information on how the drones can be best interdicted. Interdicted? Interdicted? The Iranian-style drones are cheap for Russia to use and they fire and they fly slowly. There are many opportunities to stop a drone before it hits its target in early phase of when a drone is being manufactured, when it's being shipped, when it's sitting on a launcher. Ukraine has it shown its ability to strike Russia's forces beyond the front line, hitting the drones where they are in containers or in launch pads, which could be a method for Kiev to cut down the threat. It's plausible that Western countries could help Ukraine in this regard. Israel's knowledge of the drone threat, because it's already dealt with Iranian ones for years, could aid and support ways that don't mean supplying actual military equipment. These methods can relate to detection and information details about drone flight paths and other radar signatures or classification, identification, and other med methods to help air defenders. This also relates to the Iran missile threat 
an IRGC support of Russia's war, Moscow has long worked for the Guard Corps, including Syria, and there are many opportunities to identify IRGC network that aids Russia to help in identifying them for sanctions and providing the details necessary for Western countries to identify the threats that Iran is exporting to Russia. Iran's supply of drones to Russia illustrates how the threat to Israel is now a threat and is expanding to the borders of Europe. Jerusalem has extensive experience in dealing with that kind of conflict Russia has unleashed on Ukraine. This means it's well-placed to aid Kiev either in the information front or on the sanctions front or in detection and early warning. All of this can be done without sending expensive, complex, advanced military hardware, the kind of hardware that Western countries often are careful about exporting. Okay. Okay, the U.S. The Jerusalem Post, U.S. by Tova Lasroff and Lahav Harkov, Wednesday. U.S. We expect Allenby Crossing for Palestinians to be open 24-7. The United States expects Israel to hold to the Monday date to implement the expansion plan by which Allen Bay Bridge, King Hussein Crossing, would be open 24 hours a day so that West Bank Palestinians can travel abroad through Jordan. We expect it to be done, U.S. Ambassador to Israel Tom Nidus told the Jerusalem Post. He called. He recalled that both Prime Minister Yar Lapid and Defense Minister Benny Gantz had pledged to expand the crossing hours when U.S. President Joe Biden was in, was in Israel in July. The expansion of the crossing hours has been important to the U.S., which has worked to ease travel for Palestinians. Prior to Biden's visit, Moroccan King Mohammed V. had also been involved through Transportation Minister Merav Mikali Labor in ensuring the expansion of the crossing hours. Reports surfeited this week that the chairman of the airport's authority board of directors had raised concerns that the plan had implications for the elections and should be delayed after the voters head to the polls on November 1st. An initial plan to expand the hours had been set before set for September, but then was put on after put sorry then was put off after until I can't read. An initial plan to expand the hours had been set for September, but then was put off until after the Jewish holidays in October. There have also been some issues regarding manpower shortage, such as existed at Ben Gurion Airport in the aftermath of the closures in the last few years due to the COVID pandemic. And now appears that the airport's authority will hold October 24th date, pending a review of expansion plan by the board. Staffing at the land crossing is under the auspices of airport's authority, which is part of the transportation ministry. The IDF has also oversight the crossing, given that it's at Jordan Valley, in which under IDF military and civilian rule. McCallie, according to sources close to her, has written letter to the airport's authority insisting the plan must move forward. There has been speculation that failure to meet the October 24th date could create tension between Jerusalem and Washington. 
Most Palestinians in the West Bank are barred from traveling abroad through Ben Gurion Airport. They exit the West Bank through Allenby instead and fly abroad from the airport in Amman. Limiting crossing hours, however, have made such travel burdensome. Israel this year has already expanded the hours, but it was not enough to streamline Palestinian travel. The crossing is open from 8 to 11.30 p.m., 8 a.m. to 11.30 p.m., from Sundays to Thursday, and from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Fridays and Saturdays. Okay. Expanding the crossings. Sounds like that's forward motion. I'm not going to go over the incidentals. I'll just read the highlights. Palestinian gunmen behind Jerusalem attack, killed in West Bank. I mean, this is such a common thing that it's I, I can't even have the energy to get into it. Israeli settlers attack Palestinians in Nablus amid army siege. Amid army siege? Okay. Well, I will read that. A little bit more. Okay, um, so this is Israeli settlers attack Palestinians in Nablus. Amid our army siege, Zena al Tehran, Wednesday, Al Jerisa. So there's a, this is the West Bank, and there's a gruesome attack on schools and a principal. Two ch children, 16 and 17, were treated in a hospital for cuts and injured from rocks. The assault on the high school came as a part of a sharp increase in coordinated armed settler attacks under Israeli army protection during the past month in the town of H-U-W-W-A-R-A and other parts of Nablus, which where organized Palestinian armed residents against Israeli occupation has intensified in the recent months. Dozens of Palestinians have been injured and their properties destroyed in settlers on Huari. I don't know how to say that. Huwara. And September 19th and 28th, as well as October 4th for three days in a row last week. More than 400 Palestinian properties were damaged in 500 attacks this year. Two Palestinians killed. While settler violence is a daily reality for millions of Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and East, East Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, the recent spike has come against a backdrop of several factors. More organized Palestinian armed operations against Israeli soldiers and settlers in Nablus and other cities, as well as nearing Israeli elections as arrival of annual olive harvest season. The last two are consistently accompanied with more violence against Palestinians. Um, since the attack, Israeli forces have imposed a continued blockage on the area around Nablus, restricting the movement of about 420,000 Palestinians including patients, elderly people, and children who must wait hours before being able to cross. Days prior, four-day siege was imposed on 130,000 Palestinians in Shuafet refugee camp and occupied East Jerusalem in search of alleged, alleged suspected and similar shooting. Tensions in the ground had been boiling up in the occupied West Bank since last year, with increasing shootings at Israeli military checkpoints and soldiers during the past month alone. Three Israeli soldiers have been killed in separate attacks 
Meanwhile, Israel has intensified raids, killing and arresting Palestinians in Jenin. Labouf said March when it launched military options that caused breaking the wave. In a series of settler rallies between late September and October, dozens of settlers closed off entrances to Nablus, causing severe traffic jams, launched attack on Palestinians, and demanded that Israeli government order a military crackdown on occupied West Bank. They are carrying out attacks with the goal, including emptying streets from Palestinians and carrying out attacks in order to demand the army to enforce Iron Hand on Palestinian people, he continued. This is known along Israel's history that whoever kills the most Palestinians will win in elections because this, this state is criminal, told Al Jariza. I don't know if that's true. I mean, all of the drama of the specifics of the attacks is not. I mean, you could go back and forth, right? I mean, it's messy. Um, it needs to be resolved. The one state needs to come up with a reasonable two-state solution that is including incredibly heavy vetting, I think. Um, yeah. And it's a work in progress for Palestinian justice, for sure. But, um, you know, uh, doing these... Gross attacks don't really help the peace process either, though. Um, Allen Bay Crossing. Okay. Did cover that. The old debate about the cat, where if Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, I, I, I mean, it just gets exhausting. Is it Tel Aviv? Is it <laughs> Jerusalem? <laughs> Jerusalem is a land shared by four major religions, Armenian, Muslim, Jewish. What's the other one? <laughs> four quarters. Armenian, Muslim, Jewish, and maybe a different, I forget the other one. Sorry. It's a shared area. I don't have a problem with Jerusalem being the capital of Israel. Israel's concern, U.S. concern by Israel's new wave, or sorry, new West Bank restrictions for foreigners. Tava Lesavraf, Jerusalem Post, Wednesday. Biden's administration is concerned by new Israeli instruction, restrictions on foreign visits to Palestine and the West Bank. 
Palestinians of the West Bank, which are said to take an effect on Thursday. It has in the past spoken of the 90 pages of regulations that replaced on Thursday what had been a vague three-page set rules of onerous, set as onerous. On Tuesday, U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesperson Vidant Patel said that we, of course, remain concerned about potential adverse impacts that some of these procedures could have on civil society and tourism and healthcare facilities on academic institutions. He added that the Biden administration remained engaged with Israel on this issue. Israel has made some changes to the regulations which streamline the process, thereby making it easier in some situations while creating burdensome bureaucracy with others. With strict timelines for visits and have critics warning that the rules limit foreign engagement with Palestinian society. Jessica Montel, who was executive director of Israeli left-wing NGO, Mokid, warned on Wednesday that the new procedure will make it impossible for thousands of families to live together in the West Bank. She explained that the new rules were impose, will impose additional difficulties on Palestinian universities and on institutions that rely on foreign volunteers. The regulations, for example, limit foreign students to a one-year period of consecutive study in Palestinians' academic institutions such as universities. In some instances, exemptions can be made for the 27-month period. But the total period of residence must not exceed a cumulative four years for any given degree or cumulative five years for a doctorate or postdoctorate, the regulations state. The regulations are similar for lecturers, doctors, and business people. Montel said that the Israeli military has to has the authority to impose restrictions necessary for security, but these sweeping restrictions seem to have no connection to legitimate security needs, and Israeli authorities have provided no explanation at all to justify them. Israel says that the regulations will be in place for two years before a decision will be made to make them permanent. It added that the changes can be made in that period. Okay, well, that is the political updates. I mean, I think it, it, it is clear that Israel does need to make some adjustments in its position since their victory over the 11-day war in 2021 over Hamas. Um, as a victorious nation, there does need to be kind of a reset over some Palestinian justice issues that before maybe weren't as priority because they were so busy defending themselves. But now there's a war behind their belt. They've been victorious, meaning the, the Israelis. And um, it is time for more uh, thoughtful measures to provide the peaceful Palestinians with some equal rights there, if not all equal rights. I don't think it should be entered in um, unthoughtfully. I think... The Palestinians have to understand that they have been just as much as part of the problem as they are of the solution. I think they have to understand that when you're talking about social justice, you have to look with the long lens. And you look at social justice with the Jews, and you look at social justice with the Palestinians, it's very clearly inequitable in the history of suffering. However, it doesn't negate the issue that there does need to be increased justice for Palestinians in Israel, for sure. It shouldn't be a second-class citizenship. It shouldn't be any type of apartheid language, even if the context is not reflective of comparable to South Africa in any way. 
um, there does need to be some forward motion put in place. I think that the one state solution ultimately was the best. And that would only really be feasible if the world would acknowledge the Jews' suffering and why they created the state of Israel after World War II in the first place. But I don't know if they apparently feel like the Jews have earned their redemption through that or if time's up or what's going on. But I think um, I think a lot of things. I think that the one state solution is at the power position now where they have, have a war under their belt. They can show that they can fully defend themselves. And so with that being the stronger nation, they could come up with their own version of a two-state solution. That would work. I also think heavy vetting for said Palestinians to be part of two-state solution is entirely appropriate. The Palestinians have to prove themselves to Israel. Israel and the Jews do not have to prove themselves to the Palestinians. Historically. Again, long lens justice, short lens justice. You have to look at all of it. Um, the Palestinians have the burden of proof of well behavior compared to the Israelis. That doesn't mean Israelis haven't done bad behavior. It just means in the volume of scale, Palestinians have done far worse in terms of their behavior to Jews. That is a proven fact. And Hamas, horrendous. And there's a lot of ties between Hamas and Palestinians. It's almost synonymous. So the Palestinians have to distinguish between themselves, between the nice Palestinians and the ones associated with the terrorist organization known as Hamas. Yeah, there's no terrorist organization in Israel. Palestinians like to call Israel itself a terrorist organization. No, it, it defends itself against terrorism. It's clearly a difference. So the burden of believe us will be nice to you is placed on Palestine, clearly, historically. Um, that being said, is there a place in the world at all for there to be a sovereign space for a one-state solution. You know, there's all this talk about floating islands and dedicating islands. And my view is this. I don't know if there's any local islands off the coast of Israel anywhere in proximity or if it could be built. But I also think, you know, there still can be a somewhat of a territory that Israel can call itself its own. Um, that is would be purely under a one-state solution. It may be an island, maybe an Israeli territory. I don't really know. Um, you know, the U.S. has the Virgin Islands. The British has the British Islands, Virgin Islands. And Dutch and French have offshooting islands that are still their territory. And, you know, why not Israel having such a thing too? But having it be a one-state solution completely under Jewish rule. I don't see a problem with that idea. No one really talks about that idea. I think it's um, a good solution to add to the sharing. Um, with sharing comes trust. Trust has to be earned, right? And the burden is always on the stronger, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there are ways to provide better justice for Palestine. And at the same time, still provide that idea of a sovereign nation through Israel. It just may not be actually on that actual land. It may be on a newly created land, perhaps. Um, anyhow, just wanted to share about that. That is the updates.
on, I think, all things, yes, all things news.